Hi, kids. Let's learn about words. You keep using the word. I do not think it means what you think it means. What does it all mean, Basil? At last, we're going to have a dialogue about the power of words. Discussion of a language. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I learned that you should choose your words carefully. That's what counts. Far, far more complex. Well, by God, I got a couple of words for you. The quality of your words. We all know where to find the meaning of a word. A dictionary. The consummate repository of cut and dry definitions for all, quote, certified words. The truth is, however, that most words can hold many meanings, depending on situation, culture, generation, and perspective. Don't tell me words don't matter. Because our words have creative power. On Open to Interpretation, host Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty and educators from different academic disciplines to consider a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. What did you say? Whatever I feel like I want to say. Sometimes for a moment I can't say anything. Through debate and dialogue, Open to Interpretation reminds us that rarely, if ever, can a word's meaning be reduced to a single understanding. It ain't the word! It's the context in which the word is said. To get a great job in this economy, you need to have strong language. Well, I think that's a super philosophy, Sean. And now, here's Dr. Amy Young. Hello, and welcome to Open to Interpretation. I'm Amy Young. I'm a communication professor here at Pacific Lutheran University. And today, I am joined by two colleagues, Justin Eckstein, Assistant Professor of Communication, and Kevin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Religion and Environmental Studies. So we're going to start with a speed round. Um, best book you've read in 2015? Uh, I just read this novel called Doc by Mary Doria Russell, which is about Doc Holliday, uh, and was just gripping, amazing Western I hadn't read a Western novel in years. It was awesome. Awesome. I don't have anything exciting to say. I would probably uh, say that I read. I can't even give you a good answer right now. Okay, best thing you've read that's not a book. Best thing I've read that's not a book. Bon Appetit. I got a subscription to that wonderful magazine, and now my tummy is happy. Excellent. Okay, Justin, where do you do your best writing? In my office with the door closed. I must emphasize the door must be closed. Yeah, we have a chatty office. We do have a chatty office. There's nothing wrong with that, but people sometimes, even if the door is closed, decide to come in and talk at you. I understand. Yeah. I have that. Kevin, what about you? Best writing spot? Uh, at home. Uh, I have a home office. Uh, I also keep the door closed. And what I like about home is that absolutely no one else ever goes in there, so I can be an utter control freak about the space. See, I can't write at home. Uh, you know what's too tempting? Netflix. Uh, yeah, you can get that at work, you know. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Why'd you tell me that? Trouble. Uh, that's the road. I have a problem with Netflix. I also have a problem with my refrigerator. Okay. I just keep running to uh, it yeah. instead of writing. It's there beckoning. <laughs> okay, Justin... On a camping trip, do you prefer to sleep in a tent, cabin, pickup truck bed, or none of the above? I prefer to glamp, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners who are unfamiliar with glamping, can you provide a short definition? It mostly involves the Ritz-Carlton, if that's at all possible, or a similar uh, establishment. Someone who makes you coffee. You don't want to. You don't want to be lost in the the wilderness with me. I'm of no help. I will be useless worse than useless let's perfect kevin tent cabin pickup truck bed or none of the above yeah i'm gonna keep my environmental studies cred and say tent 
which I do like, like two nights a year. It's awesome. Yeah. What about you? Are you? Uh, I'm sort of more on Justin's train on that. It's a tough life. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just say it's for the health of my back, you know, as opposed to because I'm just a wuss about sleeping outside. I hope my boys, my old Boy Scout leader is not listening to this. Very <laughs> in me. We won't tag him on Facebook when this gets released. Although I should have known when I couldn't figure out the square knot that maybe for this one wilderness was not. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't for you. <laughs> That's pretty sad. (laughs) Okay, so on to our word. For this uh, podcast of Open to Interpretation, our word is advocacy. Advocacy is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot, especially in sort of contemporary campus communities, uh, Pacific Lutheran and other places. So how would you define advocacy in a sentence or two. We'll start with Kevin. In a sentence or two, advocacy is standing up for something or someone, uh, taking a position and saying, I want this to happen or I want this group to do well. Uh, that'd be my quick definition. Okay. Justin? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say it's offering reasons in favor of a particular standpoint or position, whether that be a political item or a truth claim or a value statement. And what are some things that you yourselves ad for, advocate for regularly, like on a weekly or even daily basis? Dinner. So Justin advocates for dinner. So tell me more about that. Talk to me about dinner advocacy. Well, no, what we I, I meant it only half joking, like on the one hand, like yeah. making sure we get a delicious dinner. But I take food politics pretty seriously, as uh, Amy does know, as we, we work on this topic together, uh, eating is a political act. So we think about how selecting a, you know, choosing organic versus, uh, you know, factory farmed meat has hopefully some sort of implication in making those considerations on a daily basis, I think, is a form of advocacy. Yeah. And I, I guess I wouldn't want to lose the the first part, though, that we do advocate for ourselves. I mean, I think it comes naturally every day. I advocate for not just I want to eat today. Luckily, I don't have to work too hard on that one. But yeah. like, right. You know, my wife wants Thai and I want Indian and I make an argument, right? And that's advocacy there and also has some broader implications based on what we choose to eat, how we choose to eat, how much we pay for it, how much we tip, all that. Yeah. So when you're thinking about advocating on behalf of other people, so we've talked a little bit about advocating for yourself. Um, But if you're advocating for other people, that can be sort of fraught, so yeah. what kinds of dangers do you think about when you're advocating on behalf of either one other person or a group of other people that you may or may not be representative mm-hmm. of? I mean, that's a hard question for me to answer in the abstract because I think of all the different sort of scenarios that could occur that have its own unique sort of um, difficulty, right? Like as a white heterosexual male, I probably can't, if you listen to some critical cultural critiques, I should not be speaking for, let's say, women of color, right? Because that enables me as a white male to continually occupy the space or the public sphere with my thoughts instead of letting these people to speak in addition to commodifying experience. I think that might be different than other instances where you're speaking for people, let's say, if you are in a departmental meeting 
uh, and you're speaking for people who aren't making as much money as you, advocating in favor of them to get a, a raise, right? Those are two different instances of speaking for others, but I think each is equally, each has different sort of concerns and considerations. One hand may be problematic, the other hand, maybe that's what you need to do, do uh, because of your position of power in relation to those that don't have it. Yeah, that's that's great. I want to associate myself with what Justin said. Sounds good. It it really it points to the. I don't love the word advocacy as much as a word like solidarity um, or empowerment, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. I think you're always going to have this trap with advocacy, unless you're advocating for yourself, that you're taking on somebody else's position. You're you're trying to speak for them, and uh, when. Us straight white guys do that. Uh, we have a really bad habit of assuming other people want what we want and want us to be really happy and uh, and making a mess out of things by doing that. I think the danger is that you project yourself onto other people when you advocate for them. Uh, that you um, you know you follow the golden rule. You treat them as you would want to be treated instead of treating them as they want to be treated. Right. Um, instead of learning actually what their life is like. Right. Well, I think that, but I mean, just to sort of push back a little bit, I also wonder about, and something that I think about is that um, we're afforded, especially in this little trust circle that we have uh, doing this podcast, we're afforded a lot of privilege, yeah. uh, each of us, uh, in varying degrees, and those privileges and powers are often overlapping. But as university faculty, you have an opportunity sometimes to advocate for people who don't have a platform. So while I absolutely am with you that that's that can be a problem because we don't do a great job of understanding the community or the issue for which we're advocating or the different standpoints of different communities and different publics, because um, there aren't, there isn't just one right of the, which we're advocating for. I also think about, you know, is is that p- sort of part of our responsibility? Yeah. I, I mean, I think absolutely, and I think the well, I like the way you say, right? We got to advocate for those who don't have a platform. I think that's the most important thing, and when possible, advocate that they get a platform, yeah. right? Um, so I think. It's really important that people like us uh, stand up, uh, you know, in in these particular years in our nation's history and say, yes, Black Lives Matter. This is Mm -hmm. really important. And then I think it's really important we sit down and say, and these are the people who can really speak to what it's like to be African-American on the streets. I'd like to cede the stage to somebody else. And and I mean, just to the flip of that, I mean, the place I really think you have to speak for those who don't have a platform is, you know, my research is in environmental ethics Uh and the atmosphere isn't speaking for itself. And I don't think it will anytime soon in words. And so that's a place where, yeah, I have to speak up. I have to say the polar bear is never going to talk. So maybe we talk for the polar bear. Maybe we talk for the climate. They want to hunt you, though. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I don't want to stick a microphone in the polar bear's face. Yeah. I don't recommend that as a future guest on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible idea. <laughs> but it would get attention. Would I get do attention. think there are in narrow sort of circumstantial con- uh, aspects. It is okay to advocate for people. And the example I was giving is institutionally. So let's say, yeah. for example, someone anointed as a manager speaking on behalf of the employees saying that they mm-hmm. require something, right? Because there's a certain risk entailed on the employee for making a request from sort of higher ups, right? Whether right. it be reprisal or something of that nature. Or another example is an ombudsperson person of some kind 
would be, you know, I, I think of the particular narrow instance of um, sexual discrimination or sexual mm-hmm. harassment policy where some people don't feel comfortable going up and advocating for themselves and thus yeah. need some sort of proxy to make those arguments for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that we can't unequivocally say that advocating for anyone outside of yourself is problematic, right? But it needs to be defined within the narrow within a narrow context. Are there kinds of... Um I don't know, triggers that are are moments where you think I should really check myself before I keep going advocating for my, either myself or somebody else? I, I, I think so. I mean, I come from a unique background, right, in which I play advocacy for a game as a, as a debater. Right. right. And so my sort of triggers might be a little bit distinct because they're both tied to, well, if you do that, that's going to lose you a debate round, which definitely shapes. Right. It is a game, but that game shapes your sort of way of thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mine are more game playing triggers, <laughs> uh, which are always tied to audience. Um, right. Whether or not a particular position will resonate with somebody more so than like real world. I don't know. What What about you with your experience with environmentalism? Yeah. I mean, I think when uh, when I think about when advocacy gets dangerous, when uh, when maybe I should sit down, uh, I think about times when I have advocated for something when I have stopped being able to hear any other perspective. And so mm-hmm. if if uh, I commit to advocacy so much that should I be not speaking for the group I think I'm advocating for, I wouldn't notice. That's a problem, right? If I've gotten so into my right. own narrative, my own voice, or even the people I'm disagreeing with, right? If I'm standing up and saying uh, we have to have this particular policy on pricing carbon, but I can't imagine how any reasonable person would disagree, I think that's another sign that I've gone a little far in my, uh, in my advocacy. Yeah, I think what you're speaking to is sort of one of the conundrums of advocacy, right? On the one hand, you need to be passionate enough about the issue to be willing to make arguments for it, to publicly make statements. But on the other hand, it can't be so much passion that you're unwilling to entertain other Mm -hmm. perspectives. So it seems to me that uh, my advisor had this term called the moral economy of conviction. And it seems Mm -hmm. to me that's what advocacy requires, your capacity to have enough – investment to be willing to uh, advocate a position while also maintaining investments to the procedure of getting up and arguing and willing to sort of curtail your perspective if confronted with a better reason. Moral economy of conviction is going on my syllabus for the next semester. Thank right. you. It would for be that. good that's indie good. rock yeah. band. Yeah. That's, oh, and yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Rod Stewart would sing for him. He's good. Ooh. <laughs> Um, okay, so what does it mean to be an advocate and a faculty member? Yeah. Because there's lots of arenas for advocacy. I mean, in some ways, as we teach, we're advocating, right? We build syllabi that are arguments mm-hmm. for stuff you should know. Yeah. Um, things that you don't necessarily need to pay attention to in fall of 2015, but maybe want to pay attention to sometime later. So we bracket stuff. We include other things. We have people read certain authors and not others. And that's that's advocating to some degree, right, a framework on your discipline or your field. Yeah. We make arguments in scholarship. And then we're all on one or a thousand 
seems, committees where <laughs> um, and department meetings and mm-hmm. other kinds of more formal organizational structures that require us to advocate for our units or ourselves or yeah, our or colleagues our or our students. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's, I mean, I'd go back to what Justin was saying earlier about the sort of power and privilege. I mean, there are there are folks I think it's my job to advocate for. I mean, I have I have more power in a lot of ways than my students, and I think it's my job to look out for them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I legally am, your job, too. And legally my job as well, right. I think I also, <laughs> you know, with junior colleagues, with other people who work at the university, you know, when you have academic freedom or status or whatever, there's, right. there's real reason to use that, and it's, it's, it's our responsibility. But then I think the other thing you speak to is this uh, advocating on issues and advocating on political topics. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in all of what we teach, uh, tense issues come up that our students are going to disagree about. Right. And I make decisions on a day-to-day basis on am I going to tell them what I think? Am I going to try and get them to think what I think? Or is this a place where we can disagree and I'm going to advocate for conversation and dialogue rather than a, a right position? And that that line is really hard to walk. You know, that was making me think of so last year when I was teaching COM 101, uh, the global, the climate change quote controversy, and I yeah. put it in – you can't see my scare quotes, but they're there <laughs> around controversy, right, came up. And I couldn't believe the number of students that still were skeptical about climate change being real. So the yeah. class turned into COM 101 plus climate change is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At what point did you start yeah. making that shift from teaching it as a controversy to teaching it as a, an issue? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so it's really – and that has happened. So the, I'm uh, I'm in my ninth year here at PLU and uh, the first few years I was here, it was very much let's talk about this. Who thinks the science goes this way and who thinks it goes the other way? And I would say it's, uh, it's four years in, so what, uh, five or six years ago that I just stopped doing that and started saying, look, there's no reason to debate that. Um, and I, you know, maybe that's advocacy. Maybe it's um, the statement of fact. I think there's some gray area because I just I don't really advocate the position. I say in this class, this is the this is the story we're going to believe about what's happening to the atmosphere. Right. But I think the important thing about that is that then I said, but here's all the things you can disagree about. Right. So the climate's changing. People are causing it. But should we do anything about it? If we do something about it, should it be economic, political, personal, global? Those are all worthy conversations to have. So, again, not to close off, not to advocate in such a way that there's nothing left to talk about. Sure. I mean, you're moving the the register from a proposition of fact, climate change yeah. is real, not real, to a policy proposition, what should we do? And And I think that's always... Uh, a more productive debate, right? There is nothing worse than just having to advocate the sky is blue. It really is because it's re- it's hard to defend that after a while. Um, yeah. The person who thinks the sky is green is just wrong and uh, that argument gets frustrating. Well, so I, I don't mean to monopolize that conversation, yeah, but fine. I wonder about do you teach anti-vax in the same way, the vaccine debate? Yeah, Um I don't teach that one is the answer, but but now I have to think of how I would, um, and then I'm going to answer that quickly, and then just turn it right back at you. Um, mm. I think I would uh, I would teach anti-vax. I don't know as much about it. I think I would say, as far as I can tell, the science is is pretty clear that vaccination is a good idea. But then I think I'd ask the sort of sociological question: What's going on that people don't like this? What what's behind somebody deciding not to vaccinate their kids? What else does that say about sort of what people are nervous about, afraid of? What about y'all? Do you teach that? How would you teach that? So I don't teach anti-vaccination either, but I think if I taught argumentation and advocacy, I'd probably 
use that as one of the questions around which we centered conversation. And so, you know, in in our in Justin's and my field, and probably in all, um, part of what we do in terms of teaching is also teach people how to advocate yeah. themselves, right? So it's not just that we're advocating a particular um, stance or policy position or something, but related to your, you know, what do we do about it? Climate change is real, but what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. I might do something similar, um, taking the California uh, law that was just passed, that whatever the proposition was, that was um, that you are free to not vaccinate your children, yeah. but you also then cannot send them to public school in the state of California. And there are a lot of people who think that is a decision that is better left to parents. But I am a parent, uh, and <laughs> I sort of wonder if my fellow parents aren't sort of, um, you know, not taking responsibility yeah. for that. I mean, that probably tips my hand way too much about how I feel about vaccination. But Well, what to me it gets at, and I think is an interesting debate, is when is it inappropriate to allow for advocacy to mm-hmm. occur? So uh, an analog returning to climate change is I just wouldn't entertain arguments from climate skeptics. And maybe mm-hmm. that puts me outside the moral economy of conviction that we talked about earlier. <laughs> or maybe... Just maybe there is an area where we say some topics are sacrosanct. And I think the reason why we say things like we wouldn't entertain people like climate change deniers is because there's a material impact. Climate change is going – it is not going. It is in the present tense harming many communities. Right. right? Just because we don't see it here in the Pacific Northwest because we are incredibly – but we do, right? Like the wildfire season. Sure. uh, What's going to affect crops. uh, We're seeing The heat. The heat. The drought. The drought, right? So – Maybe is there a critical threshold at which point where we can identify a danger? We can say that what you're advocating is frankly dangerous and therefore we shouldn't allow you. Yeah, I mean, I think the the example is really helpful, and because it goes back to right, Amy and her kids. Because mm-hmm. I would imagine it's not that all, all that hard for you to stand up for your kids and say, "Yeah, people at this school are going to be vaccinated because my kids could get sick if they're not." Right. right? Absolutely. And I think um, that's one of the reasons uh, the vaccine debate I think is so interesting because it is so personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. People like us talking about climate change, it's not all that personal, right? Because you can fool yourself into thinking it's not happening, right? Oh, yeah, it's right. been a dry year, but it'll be wet again next it's year. Snowball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. It snowed last winter, so yeah. climate change can't be real. And uh, well, that's and- what Steve King does. Congressman Steve King, you know, he always sends Al Gore pictures of himself in the snow and that kind of thing, saying, yes. it's not real. Again, if the sky, if you tell me the sky is green, it's going to be hard to continue <laughs> the conversation. You are still wrong, Yeah. <laughs> You can believe it (laughs) and still be wrong. But the difference is there aren't the same sort of disastrous consequences that occur if I believe the sky is green, right, and thus I will prevent legislation that helps people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's true. I I, I would disagree with the characterization that climate change – and maybe I think you, Kevin, would be better to speak on this. But I think that there's this weird sort of overlap between some sects of evangelical Christians – and and climate change denial, right? And I think it's because it implicates matters of faith, right? Something I would say is very personal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I think part of the trouble is the people who've had real personal uh, 
concerns about climate change and who have sort of the megaphone have tended to be people who it challenges their theology, right? That God could possibly let this happen uh, challenges their theology. Whereas more liberal uh, theologians or people who don't uh, have much faith at all, it doesn't challenge their theology that climate change is or is not happening. So it doesn't get as personal. Mm -hmm. Now, there's lots of people for whom climate change is deeply personal, right? There's people in Bangladesh who have been driven from their homes already. There's Uh, there's a city and a village in Alaska that's going to have to move at the cost of millions of dollars because right. it's just not viable there anymore. Those people don't tend to the megaphone. That gets back to your question, who do you advocate for? Yeah. I think those are the people I hope um, I can find opportunities to speak up for. Well, and it gets to this question of sacrosanct again, which seems to me is like we've invested in the system of knowledge production called science. Why are we not trusting it? Right when, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and just no to, one can see the smirk on my face right now. I just realized I'm on the radio. <laughs> well, I just to get to another. I mean, another issue I've been reading a little bit about and know less about is GMOs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's a place where the political valence switches a little because it's political liberals who tend not to trust the science on GMOs and to think that yeah. science must be tainted by industry. We can't possibly well, trust it. Well, I think it. that's true of the vaccine. Yeah, it's the same. The anti-vaccine yeah, community yeah, also yeah, tends to be yeah. much, uh, much more politically liberal. It's such a weird sort of assemblage when you look at the anti-vaxxers, which are similar to the anti-GMOs because yeah. you have this sort of – coalition on the one hand of like super religious people and like then whole foods liberals mm-hmm. which typically don't even interact with one another but yet yeah, can come together on the question of genetic engineering whether that or you mm-hmm. know vaccination and would probably be upset to find out that those they, are the other people in their little <laughs> tribe yeah yeah i guess i'm i'm still thinking through the connection of these two issues because to me and this might just reveal my bias uh GMO seems like less settled issue than vaccines. I mean, it seems like we've been vaccinating for uh, a considerable amount of time mm-hmm. without clear negative effects in, in statistical in significant numbers. And uh, and whereas GMOs, uh, we've been modifying organisms, but the genetic the genetic changes feel new to me. And so that's that's how I distinguish those two issues. But maybe I'm fooling myself. No, I no, I think you're totally right. And I think that the the arguments made in favor of, let's say, labeling GMOs are different, right? They're not all health based, whereas mm-hmm. vaccine arguments are all based. Like I think of one example, right, which is that in some genetically modified organisms that they splice in shellfish. I don't remember why into carrots or other produce for mm-hmm. a pesticide. And if you're kosher, right, that represents a serious violation in your eating practices. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So from that perspective, that totally makes sense why you might be suspicious of GMOs mm-hmm. because you have a strict eating regimen. Right. It'd be like feeding meat to a vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, could also happen in genetically modified organisms if you talk to vegans. So it, right. there's an ethical argument that could be made, not just a, a health-based argument. And I... I don't know. Bill Nye, the science guy who seems to be the public intellectual par excellence for science, came out in favor of GMOs. But, you know, it's hard. They're not – they're newer. You don't have as many trials. You don't have as much repeatability for it to Mm -hmm. uh, get the same sort of uh, epistemic or, you know, truth value as um, the vax debate. How do you teach students to make arguments, to advocate? Hmm. You start on that one. That's Justin? Oh, thanks. Uh, carefully <laughs> uh, and slowly. Uh, 
I mean, I think it starts with more of a natural. I mean, students naturally argue. All of us have an inclination to stand up for what we believe in, whether it be something as mundane as I want, you know, Thai, Mex- Thai right. or Mexican food for right. dinner, uh, to more to broader political sen- uh, stances. I have a particular technology for teaching people to argue because I'm a debate coach, right? So that means I have the lure of a win and I can harness students' natural competitive desires and articulate it towards the goal of argumentation. Another way that you can do is you can sort of activate students' latent curiosity uh, into issues and get them to sort of use argumentation as a dialectic or as a truth-making uh, methodology, right? Right. Um, so those, I, I would say, are my two primary ways. And I, I would say I primarily teach through arguing, right? Like when I select an object for class, I always select a controversy, mm-hmm. not in scare quotes, right? <laughs> but like because – An actual controversy. An actual controversy right. because they're so meaty and there's so many sure. different views and perspectives you can take. And I always ask students to defend what they've said. Right. It, what I mean, what's so interesting about the way you answer that question is I, I think I would say the exact opposite in yeah. that it, arguing does not seem to come naturally to my students. And that might be our persona or it might be who ends up in our classrooms or the fact that you're teaching debaters uh, some of your time. But I find that to get my students, to teach them advocacy, the first thing I have to get them comfortable with is tension and disagreement uh, because yeah. they, they often come into the classroom with a – I think like a politeness that becomes relativism, mm-hmm. just like, well, you, you seem to think that way and that must be OK. Right. So you not vaccinating your kids is live your business. And, live and, and let live. Exactly. And yeah. and so pushing them to say, no, find something you believe in enough that if somebody said the opposite, you would uh, you would take the opportunity to educate them whether they wanted to or not. Yeah, that's uh, that's the that's the push I have. And uh, and so I think that leads to some different techniques. For instance, I'm never argumentative with them in the classroom. I try and keep the argument as something separate from me so that I'm this sort of safe, non uh, non disputatious space that they can come back to. But I try really hard to get them arguing with each other. Yeah. Uh, And so to make the argument happen out there and I can sort of referee or something to keep it. Keep it kosher. Make sure it stays on uh, on course. Exactly. Does right, right. Yeah, right, right, right. That's not. What is a Goodwin's fallacy? The least amount of steps to Hitler. Yeah, right, 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 online. Yeah. Like, how many steps? God, is Nazis? that Godwin's law or something or God, like There we that. go, Godwin's yeah. law, yeah. You know, the Nazis had sweatshirts. Therefore. <laughs> right, right. You are a Nazi. Yeah. I, I think about that whole politeness thing as, in some ways, it's part of our particular university yeah, culture. Exactly. I think mm-hmm. it's sort of like a, I have to nod to your truth because that's what we do here and whether your truth is completely insane or not um, I'm just going to be really nice about it uh, but I'm I'm thinking about um, your Kevin your point that students just don't come in and want to make <laughs> arguments yeah. and I think part of it is um, that arguing and advocacy in my mind are different activities mm-hmm. uh, that um, in part, they don't want to make arguments because they don't like the gray area and they don't like to be pushy. Some of them, some of them do. Um, they may never have really been asked to defend an opinion, mm-hmm. right? Because if you come from most of our educational environments these days, it's standardized testing and there's five possible answers and there's always a right one. Mm-hmm. And it's much more difficult to get people to embrace ambiguity and kind of be okay sitting in ambiguity and also then 
It is unfortunate, but then the taking ambiguous. Oh yeah, absolutely. But then taking making an argument is one thing, but then taking the next step to actually advocate for something right. is different because then you have to shape those arguments to your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, because now you've taken it public. So now if you've got to convince other people, <laughs> yeah. Right? Which has a degree it, of risk too, right? Absolutely. There is the fear of failure and of being called out. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I, I just I'm thinking back to the moral economy of conviction idea because I I'm this I, is in this conversation my, my band name, I've yeah. been yeah no and you're gonna rock I, I've been putting it just <laughs> Taylor Swift covers all and over again yeah. I've been putting uh, I've been putting this on my students and like why don't they want to advocate but I do the same thing I mean there's there's issues I speak to and issues I don't right sure yeah. and I'm willing to say I know the truth about climate change but then GMOs well, yeah and that's because I want the right balance between uh, what I really want to speak to and what I think I can hear, uh, what I think I can uh, can calibrate to my audience. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just them that have this trouble. And I think uh, as I think about it, probably the most useful way I teach my students to advocate is uh, being deliberate about when I advocate in front of them, right. sort of showing them what I'm going through and that it's not easy, but it still can be worth doing. Yeah. I'm thinking about sort of campus political issues, too. Yeah. I mean, are there places where you feel like you can't advocate? Yeah. And I the, mean, are there I mean, spaces or audiences with whom that is just really, really a bad idea, even in this yeah. place of, of supposed academic freedom? I mean, we, we joke about, you know, you have to select what you advocate, mm-hmm. right? But professors are often under the microscope for, quote, liberal bias. Like, granted, we are all talking here about being liberal, although yeah. we're chastising them on the vax question, mm-hmm. right? But I don't feel like I could get up in a classroom and be like, you know who you need to love? Barack Obama. <laughs> I think that all of you need Obama shirts, Mm -hmm. right? Because I would be accused of a bias. So I think in a very real sense that teaching or advocating in the classroom requires more of a velvet glove than we might think, right? Through more subtle means of shaping the syllabus by agenda setting, right? I think is what the media theorists would call it. Right. then more sounds of the... sort of Orwellian, but yeah, we all do that. Well, and I think the the difference is from 1984, right? Is I hope what my students have by the end of class uh, of a course is well, they probably haven't read 1984, <laughs> but I hope by the end of the course they can look at the syllabus and they can see how I advocated. Yeah, like they could take apart my argument and sure. imagine how they could disagree, and uh, and so it's not it's advocating, but hopefully being explicit about it. And I think you're right. It's um it's also advocating things that aren't gonna just shut down some people in the room, right? I think if I choose a political candidate, there's a significant portion of the classroom that's just going to stop listening. Or for me, guns. Yeah, okay. Right, like I have a bunch of scholarship on guns uh, and I will get up and I will entertain the gun debate. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times they'll just look at me and glaze over, right? Like so an argumentation theorist would say that the conditions of argument are no longer present because they're not listening to you, right? Mm -hmm. It might as well be on either side of that moral economy of conviction. And you can be accused then of trying to indoctrinate them with your liberal bias against guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I like to think about it as I I don't intend to influence the way my students are going to vote in the next election. I really want to influence the way they vote in like eight years. Like I want them, I want to have planted seeds that, and and not necessarily that they're going to vote the way I do, um, although probably they will if they get smart, right? But just that they're going to have deeper, 
uh, deeper tools with which to ask, like where do I want, what direction do I want the country headed? Uh, yeah. How many guns do I want on the streets, et cetera? There are a lot of people who don't really want to claim the mantle of advocacy. And Kevin, you push back a little on the term because you like other things like I wrote down solidarity and engagement were mm-hmm. a couple of words you used. What are some stigmas that are commonly attached to that word, to advocacy? Um, and I mean, I, to me, it seems like there's a possible conflation of the word advocate and activist. Yeah. And there are faculty members who will claim with great mm-hmm. pride the term activist. Um, I happen to be one of them, but there are others who would really prefer oh, yeah. <laughs> not, not to be called oh, that, yeah. right? Because somehow that seems like advocacy seems kind of okay, activism doesn't. Or, you know, what are some of the stigmas, do you think, associated with advocacy? I One that I find really interesting is, and I get this from students, but not just students, uh, the idea that uh, they might not be worthy of calling themselves an advocate. So oh, if I ask a class of students, yeah. are, who's an environmentalist or who's a feminist? Yeah. Some will say I'm not because I disagree with the basic ideas behind it. But most who say no, it will say, well, I can't be an environmentalist because, you know, I drive a big car. And and so the idea that you can't be a hypocrite and be an advocate or be an activist uh, stands in, I think, uh, stands in for a lot of people to say, well, that's not me. I don't do that because I'm not pure. That's interesting. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I never thought about that. But it's true, right? Like you'll see them say, I'm, I can't be an activist. I don't do all of the things they imagine. Right. Act, or I'm sorry, not activist, advocacy as an extremist yeah. orientation. Right. Like who's the poster person for advocacy? Yeah. And I, I'm yeah. not that person. I don't think about this every day, all day. And so I can't be an advocate on it. Right. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I don't really know any stigma. Maybe it's because no one has come up to me or because I do debate for a living. Mm-hmm. They're uh, scared of you. I, I don't think so. But uh, I just haven't. Maybe people advocate too much the idea sort of a sophistry might be yeah but that's not really attached to i don't see it attached to that word to advocacy yeah Yeah. i think i mean the other the other place i encounter it in teaching about religion and being in religious communities is there's a lot of people who believe that it has to be absolutely separate advocacy has to be something absolutely separate from faith or family or whatever's personal um, so that oh, hmm. advocacy is uh, something you can maybe do out there in the public square, but we don't do it here in this church, in this classroom, somewhere else. That there's there's these separate spaces, sacrosanct spaces. Does that tie to sec, uh, kind of the secular mentality? I think. Um, I mean, it. Uh, it. Uh, I would put it more in the sort of the most mainstream religious traditions tend to have depoliticized themselves, and it's part of how mm-hmm. they get a sort of a wide following. And so uh, the the impulse to say let's keep religion out of politics and politics out of religion is a way to diffuse any debate and therefore say all are welcome because. Uh, and here I'll express my bias. We don't do very much here, right? We don't. We don't advocate. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. All right. So one of the questions then that we might think through is the difference, if there is one. I think there is one colloquially in the way that the words advocacy and activism are used and that activism tends to be a much more negatively valenced term. So, for instance, if you attend a rally, a political rally of some kind, then you're an activist, you know, you're and that 
and that has some sort of rebellious or or uh, dangerous sort of connotations. But if you go and you testify on the Hill for the exact same cause, you're doing advocacy. Yeah. So what's the difference? Is there a difference between advocacy and activism or are we just making that up? You know, thinking about this question, I think that the way that at least contextually they were defined is I think you associate activist with non-discursive means of advocacy. Say that in a non-nerdy way. In a non-nerdy way, you imagine them not getting up and speaking about an issue in favor, but you imagine them marching. Yeah, yeah. Right. You okay. imagine them occupying space like Earth First. Yep. You imagine them or occupy their, Wall Street or, or occupy uh-huh. Wall Street. You imagine them putting their body in peril in some particular way. So it's some, physical. So yeah, it's physical. It's material. It's not necessarily tied to the words that they're saying, although words could be used. Yep. Whereas advocacy seems like somebody orating hmm. or cerebral. It's yeah. sort of mind body split. No, and I think uh, absolutely on that Cartesian the. Advocacy, and I would not have thought of this valence to the terms, but I absolutely, it's in my head. Advocacy feels safer. Uh, advocacy feels like you are like trying to change safer. the system with the system. Yeah. And activism sounds like, oh, what what might you do, right? You might throw a rock. Extra um, legal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like Agitator. it's at least, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and so, and, you know, as I think about it, if those definitions fly, there's issues on which I am an advocate and issues on which I am or feel like I should be an activist, right? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be within the system. I should be willing to uh, bust some heads to get some things done on right. some issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, following that, right, you don't see the, the state anoint people as activists, but right. they definitely do as advocates. No, and I, w- I think, like, historically, I'd say activists tend to be lionized, celebrated as advocates, right? Martin Luther King was absolutely using extra legal means. We mostly celebrate him for giving good speeches, uh, and that's making him an advocate rather than activist if these terms because work. Because it's a yeah. lot – the scary part of his legacy is his right. activism. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, anti-war. It, he said some pretty scary stuff in his speeches. Anti-capitalism and, yeah. yeah, all of that. Yeah, they've been saying we've sanitized the image of Martin right. Luther King now in the contemporary moment. Sure, but but so does that mean uh, all advocacy is a little too sanitary? Like, are we are we deciding advocacy isn't as good as activism? Well, it seems like it's a site for privilege, mm-hmm. right? It seems like a question of access, right? Like, advocacy might be a more effective means of ad- ad- advancing a particular standpoint, but not all have access to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it seems like it's an insider yeah. position, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you if you're an advocate, somebody has observed and recognized your authority on some right. you, you're allowed position. To you're allowed mm-hmm. to speak for whatever reason. And if you're an activist, I think part of our sort of image of activism is colored by the fact that what we think of as an activist are usually people who are not insiders or are choosing to act as outsiders in some sort of systemic or political cultural mm-hmm. sphere. And they're using their bodies to do that in yeah. a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I do think there might be something I th- I've never really thought about that, that there's some sort of split between yeah. the cerebral right. sort of the activity of advocacy and the, bodily material activity of activism all right so final thoughts what do you want to say 
Let's do the final word on this word, advocacy. Well, I Kevin? think uh, I mean, you know, you gather three professors and have a conversation, and I think what we got to is a grand theory of everything, because I think there is this, <laughs> there is this distinction we've come to between advocacy and activism, and I think that distinction comes down to this moral economy of conviction, right? It's how much does your conviction uh, balance against your willingness to play by the rules, it seems like is the difference we've drawn here. And yeah. so now that we have that master theory, we just need to write it up really quick and publish and be famous. I took away I that gonna be super Kevin's famous. getting us Thai food. <laughs> no, Indian. Yeah. Oh, or Indian food. Really? I actually would be okay with either one because I like curry See, there's across the There's the polite s- relativism I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, right. I, yeah, curry but- across the spectrum. <laughs> Can I just be greedy and say I want both and not be a relativist? <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Uh, what, what would you, what would you play in our band, Moral Economy of Conviction? Washboard. Me. Washboard. Yeah. Oh, Justin. I saw this band, by the way. It was a, I was like at a, a tour, but there was a flaming washboard solo. Shut up. It was amazing. Like somebody set their washboard, washboard on, on fire. fire and played it. Wow. I know. It was okay. like something, something in their big ass band. Okay. Revise my statement. I would play Kevin's the gonna play washboard on fire. Yeah. Flaming washboard. Flaming wash- Justin. Uh, the tambourine. The most intricate and, uh, and virtuoso. I think to balance out, how about the underwater tambourine? Okay. Like you put it in a tub and yeah. Yeah, fire. We need the water. Fire nearby. and water. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I'm gonna play like an '80s style synthesizer. See, I thought oh, you'd a be a guitar. Uh huh. Oh, oh nice. yeah. Yeah. See, absolutely. I would have picked a theremin for you. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> You're gonna love it. Yeah. The dulcimer. Ooh, I don't so know good. what that is. Yeah. Electric dulcimer. <laughs> the world's first. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Justin, for joining me on episode one of Open to Interpretation. Thanks, Amy. It was fun. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's all I had to say about that. I learned something today. We're all officially kicked out of school. See you around. Yeah, see you.